0: The Two Mats is brought to you by The New European. If you like the contents of this podcast, The Two Mats, if you're a regular listener, you're going to love The New European, and I've got a very special subscription offer for you. For just a pound a week, or £2 a week if you want the newspaper, and that's the price of a bottle of water, folks, a small bottle of water. You can get the New European delivered to your door every week, and you'll be supporting great independent journalism, and you'll be kicking back against the corrosive nationalism that helped bring Brexit to Britain's shores. You'll also get a £25 voucher to spend at the New European shop, and you can get a great book we've just published on the Battle of Orgreave, or you can get a T-shirt, or you can get a mug, or you can get a great bollocks-to-Brexit passport cover so do the right thing please support this podcast and also support the new european go to theneweuropeancouk forward slash two mats that's the number two m-a-t-t-s and there's a link in the show notes
1: ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down
0: And this is The Two Mats for week-ending Friday the 25th of August, a podcast that looks to the stars. Matt, what did we talk about this week? We talked about
2: some quite serious and heavy things, uh, from the death of uh, Prigozhin in Russia, which has dominated the news in the last few days. And then we, we talked a little bit about Elon Musk and his power in America. And then we, in the second half, talked about uh, the, the chilling case of Lucy Letby. And try to kind of yeah. unpack, you know, evil and what 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 is such such thing as evil? What is evil?
0: We did, and then we we had a brief chat about um, the Indian mission to the moon, and uh, we did, and also the World Athletics and the World we Athletics did. tournament. Yeah, yes, so that was absolutely. good. What are we going to call? What are we going to call the episode?
2: Uh, should we call it Touch of Evil?
0: A touch of evil. Yeah, good. And we also. Touched on the fabulous uh, new new European subscription offer, which I won't go into full details. The full details will come uh-huh. up halfway through the podcast. But uh, there's a Mystery. very very good offer for new subscribers. So listen on. Okay, so this is the Two Mats episode ten: A Touch of Evil. <laughs> So,
2: Matt, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, I think we have to talk about the um, the death of Prigozhin. Famously led a a, a brief mutiny against um, Vladimir Putin two months ago, and his plane on its way, apparently, to St. Petersburg from Moscow, um, fell out of the sky. Uh, we don't know yet whether it was a, um, a bomb yeah. or a, a missile, but I don't think it was uh, pilot error. Um, <laughs> and, and it was rather typically... Announced in this extraordinarily brief and dry way on Russian state television, maybe our producer, the third Matt, could um, play a little bit of a clip from from that news report.
0: Rosaviatsia published the names and surnames of all passengers of the business jet that suffered a crash near Tver. In including Evgeny Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin. In total, there were 10 people on board, three of whom were crew So, uh, for those who don't speak, who aren't fluent in Russian, he was basically confirming ten people uh, were on that plane, um, including, we must remember, at least three people, maybe more, who are totally innocent of of any involvement in all of this awful business that have, you know, if Putin has uh, committed this this act, they were murdered alongside as collateral damage. Um, but yeah, so, uh, and you may have caught the, the names, uh, Prigozhin and Utkin, who, uh, Dmitry Utkin, who, who also, uh, died in the in the crash, too.
2: Dmitry Utkin is a very important figure in all this because he's the, uh, number, or was the number two, uh, in the Wagner group. In fact, he gave the Wagner group his, its name because he's a, a was a, a fanatical fan of, um, Wagner's music. But also, I, I think, uh, it's fair to say, an even more fanatical fan of neo-Nazi ideology. And um, uh, he used the salutation Heil uh, amongst his troops, Uh, a very nasty piece of work and probably operationally the key figure um, in the whole outfit. So this was classic Putin, very theatrical, unusually um, sort of quite, close to moscow Uh, you know uh, not 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 elsewhere not like litvinenko being poisoned with uh, polonium in in london or the skripal poisoning in salisbury this was a straightforward being shot out of the sky we're obviously working on the assumption that it is putin it's interesting that um on the today program we're recording this on thursday on the bbc today program this morning um they had a guy called Sergei Markov, who is often um, brought on to discuss such matters. He used to be a spokesman for Putin. And he said, oh, this is obviously Ukrainian a covert ops um, and designed to delight Zelensky. But I, I, I rather think we can dismiss that. Putin was caught off guard horribly by the coup in June, certainly the weakest he's ever looked in his many years uh, running Russia. And Prigozhin got quite close to Moscow. And I remember talking to someone in in the defence world in Whitehall around that time said, who said, look, Prigozhin got as close to Moscow as Birmingham is to London. And if you get to Moscow and you take over, you've got 6,000 nuclear warheads, you know, under your control. So it was a pretty tight thing. As a consequence, Putin dis- clearly made a decision, fairly weakened there was a standoff prigozhin back down but putin didn't feel able to to act immediately but as is his wont you know famously and it's been said so often over the years he's a he's a man with great patience and loves taking his revenge served cold and actually this you know was only 2 months so prigozhin was allowed to gain a certain amount of um, license in the intervening time he he had a, a meeting with Putin in Moscow on June the 29th which lasted for three hours he was operating out of St Petersburg there was a video that came out only this week where he was in Africa and um, there was some suggestion that Wagner was going to relocate to Belarus and get heavily involved in uh, mercenary activities in Africa which would be to the benefit of not only of Russian uh, kind of colonial ambitions but also what you know the the, the quest for uh, mineral resources and um, uh, fossil fuel resources so that that was that was where we were only a couple of days ago and then I suppose it's one of those things that is more shocking than it's surprising
0: well to on, to that point there are a couple of headlines which I thought were very telling um, one in the Daily Star the front page of the Daily Star which read this morning this is Thursday's paper no one at all shocked as warlord dies in air crash <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> <laughs> they
2: are very good yeah they really and then, do know how to write headlines yeah
0: on the BBC uh, reporting how it's been covered the story's been covered in Russia uh, the headline most Russians far from shocked you know as uh, Prigozhin mm. meets his his fate I guess the big question for me is well two big questions one is does this make Putin weaker or stronger and secondly, what what could happen next as a consequence of of what is uh, being portrayed by Prigozhin's uh, loyalists as what they they quoted as an act of uh, treachery by uh, by Russian traitors? Um, that's what the media channel linked to the Wagner group uh, described this. And I wonder whether you this think this telegram Matt, does, isn't it? Yeah telegram that's right does it, or it's i yeah. think it's called gray zone isn't it on on telegram gray anyway, zone yes it's where, on telegram what do you do you think this you know we've all said it's classic putin he deals like you said revenge is a dish best served cold and he's in, in in many ways it was shocking that prigozhin lasted 60 days um but anyway he's got <laughs> yeah. his man does it make him look stronger now does is this a signal mess with me and look what happens Or does this now set him up for an act of revenge from the Wagner group? Does it mean that the next time somebody says, I'm going to take Putin out, well, they make sure they go through with it and it does happen. Is he now in more jeopardy or is he safer as a consequence of this?
2: It's a really good question um, because, I mean, obviously, the the first thing to say is that Putin is obviously not as weak as some, certainly in Ukraine, hoped and some in the west hoped too because he's now been able to you know on home soil orchestrate a straightforward assassination it would appear so he's no longer as weak as he appeared in the immediate aftermath of the coup attempt so i wouldn't say he's back to his full strength but you know his his many internal not enemies but rivals will be thinking well you know we we can't just assume that if we kick the door down he will crumple But yes, Mm. um, I mean, Wagner is a it's a very strange group. And it's it's it goes a bit back to what we were saying last week about, you know, Trump and the gangster state and the way that modern societies are changing in the way that they're organized and power is distributed. Prigozhin, as we know, was an ex-convict. He uh, got out and he proved to be a very entrepreneurial gangster, set up restaurants, some of which were very high end and patronized by Putin and others. Uh, lived the life of Riley, and and then also got involved in the whole hacking and cyber warfare activity with a troll farm in St. Petersburg in from 2013. So you know he was, he made himself useful to Putin, and and then set up this body called which became known as Wagner, which was by far the most powerful of the private m- mercenary uh, groups that. Putin decided to make use of, particularly in the the early incursions in in Ukraine, 2014-15, when they wanted plausible deniability and also, frankly, savagery, because one of the things that the Wagner Group is, is notorious for is savagery. You know, it was for that period of time, Putin enjoyed all that because Prigozhin was useful. And then I think that there came a point when Wagner took uh, the city of Butwood in eastern Ukraine and th- there was a sort of grandiloquence about him. And he was starting to complain about the defense apparatus in, in Moscow and how he wasn't being supp- supplied with ammunition. And you could see there was a chilling and Putin thinking, I- I'm, this guy's getting too big. I've had enough. So then when we, we then had the sequence of events that led to the coup and to where we are now. As you say, Matt, there's a lot of Wagner people drifting around, milling around now, waiting to find out what their future is. Officially, all of the mercenary groups have been taken under the wing, under the auspices by contract uh, of the defense ministry. So he has, Putin has effectively nationalized all these, you know, contract groups. But there are going to be a lot of uh, very sort of angry and displaced people roaming around. The question is do they really have any significant leadership do they have someone who can take the place of uh not just precozian but Utkin, and you know represent some sort of significant threat to putin well not that we know of but i think your broader point is is the one to concentrate on which is the certainly it's certainly the case that we are witnessing slowly and not in a linear way the fall of putin and, and by the way, it could take 10 years. I don't, I'm not saying this is yeah. going to happen tomorrow. But the, que- the, the key question, as always, in any security or defense issue, is how, does it lo- how long does it take to get from A to B? So for the yeah. people who fancy themselves as the next leader of Russia, the question is, he's in trouble in Ukraine. He's now reasserted himself by taking out Prigozhin. When is the right time, if there is a right time, to strike and you're right, he has, Putin has put himself in a position where, you know, the, the, the logic now is to finish the job because you know what's going to happen to you if, you if you don't.
0: I think that's absolutely right. And I think there must be, I don't care how pathologically cool and calculating Putin is, there must be an awareness of, of his reality and at some point in the future, he's got to go, you know, he's got to go at some point in the future. And, you know, his family will be in great jeopardy when he goes. He, his, he, he himself will be in great jeopardy. He can't leave Russia. He'll be arrested on the spot and thrown into The Hague. So there must be, in his head, an increasing sense of desperation about his personal reality right now. And perhaps maybe the, the brazen nature of this assassination, if that's what it is, is... A reaction to that, the increasing stakes he finds himself in, which is, you know, yeah. it, 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 as you say, he didn't, he didn't do a, you know, an assassination by by some kind of covert poison, or the guy didn't fall out of a window, or you know, have a mysterious heart attack in a hotel room.
2: Fall out, fall down the stairs, shaving. Yeah, yeah.
0: He yeah. blew him out of the sky on Russian soil with a surface-to-air missile. And then attended the uh, BRIC conference today, yesterday, uh, you know, cool as you like, and talked about, you know, strengthening the economies of the world. Investment in Africa. Yeah, investment in Africa. um, Very interesting point, by the way. You know, when we think about Putin, as we increasingly are led to believe, uh, when we see a man totally isolated and, you know, friendless in the world, it's not true. It's not true. You know, Russia is still seen by a number of very important countries as a central power and an ally and, you know, an economic force that they want to trade with. And it's not that long ago that Brexiteers were talking about the, you know, the BRIC uh, nations, Brazil, Russia, um, India, China, uh, South Africa, as, as, you know, likely trading partners to make up for the lack of imports and exports trade we'd be doing with the European Union. So, it's he's not as isolated as we think but he's clearly existing day to day in a sen- in a state of high jeopardy and that i think makes me incredibly nervous because if he cracks one day if that sense of jeopardy becomes too much and he cracks god only knows what what his reaction will be and it won't be limited to taking a pot shot at a private jet
2: it's always a good idea to uh take autocrats at their word I mean, one of the things that I think in the age of the strongman autocrat uh, we in the West have tended, um, and even with respect to Donald Trump, to think, oh, he doesn't mean it. Well, he meant it. I mean, one thing we learned about Trump was he meant it. And I think Putin means it. And so whilst I'm not for a minute suggesting that Putin is going to um, use uh, tactical nuclear weapons, when he says he might, he means it. It's not just a sort of empty bombastic vainglorious threat he's telling western publics as well as western leaders i, I you, do, you do realize i am willing to use these warheads which is to your point terrifying the the immediate future i suppose is also uh one that contains a, an important variable for him which we've referred to in the past which is the american presidential elections because there's no question putin is running the clock out hoping that the next president of the United States will not be Joe Biden, um, ideally for him, Trump. But also we've just had the first um, Republican debate in Milwaukee from which Trump was absent. But most of the candidates were quite dovish about Ukraine and and, and don't want to be seen as um, continuing what Americans call a forever war. Um, So Mike Pence was very, very big on you know, we've got to keep in there the, the values that are being protected. There are, you know, crucial to the American way. But the general center of gravity in the Republican Party is what are you doing? What were we even doing there in the first place? Yeah, then I do with us. Let's let's end this assistance. So you can see in Putin's mind, you know, November 2024. Well, it's quite a way away, but it's not that long. If he can just hold on. You know Zelensky's been touring Europe picking up F16s clearly the the conflict is going to grind on almost indefinitely I think the things stand there is no obvious off ramp uh, because the Ukrainians do not at this point want to negotiate so for for Putin the off ramp is provided by a fundamental change in the complexion and character of of western leadership which is to say who sits in the Oval Office? So I think yeah. it, it, those variables are are real, and and they are they contribute to what you said, Matt, about the the volatility of the situation. You know, I do think yeah. we, with Putin as with Trump, we all we should always work on the basis that anything can happen.
0: So let's put Prigozhin and uh, Putin to one side for a moment and talk about another person who wields extraordinary uh, almost unique power within within his nation and uh, even more than we thought actually according to an excellent article you sent me uh, by Ronan Farrow uh, in the New Yorker was it the New Yorker or the Atlantic it was in the New Yorker and we're talking about Elon Musk and um, <laughs> yeah. i don't want to stretch i don't want to stretch the comparison with Prigozhin too far and compare Musk directly to Prigozhin. But you are talking, that the portrayal of Musk's extraordinary power and hold over and influence over the White House, was I've never read anything quite like it in this, in this article. And it was all based on Musk's control of the uh, broadband satellite data that uh, is, is being provided to Ukraine via his Starlink system. And and yes. the extraordinary uh, situation that the White House found them in,
2: as you say, it's a fantastic piece by Ronan Farrow, and clearly a huge amount of research and you know thought has gone into it. And for me, it's a, there's a, a a big biography of Musk coming out later this year by the, you know the great biographer Walter Isaacson. So that that's something to look forward to. But this piece, I think, is probably the best account of what Musk is, what he represents, how he fits into the modern culture I, I've certainly ever read, and I recommend it to all our listeners. Um, and what he, he starts off with, Farah, is is the image of Musk offering to cover Ukraine with you know give it internet coverage through his Starlink's program, but then getting quite ratty because um, he Musk said it was costing his his company uh, SpaceX four hundred million dollars a year and and wanting to you know, get some something back. And in the end, the the Pentagon having to cut a deal. So, you know, Ukraine was dependent upon Musk. More to the point, the American military industrial complex was dependent upon Elon Musk. And what the piece then goes on to explore in chilling detail, actually, is how many American departments, and it's a long list, depend to a greater or lesser extent upon the cooperation of Elon Musk. So, you know, moving, as we all hope, moving to electric vehicles, you know, before long. But Tesla has uh, so many of the charging points that you have to cut a deal with Elon Musk. All sorts of um, basic public services depend on Elon Musk being on side. Uh, and we and know NASA's entire space uh, program. And NASA's entire space program is, you know, dependent on SpaceX now. So mm. it's an extraordinary moment. And I think the comparison with Pregosian is really, is, is actually very interesting that you may, because, you know, Elon Musk does not have a private army that we're aware of, and he's not, he can't be president of the United States because he wasn't born in the United States, born in South Africa. But the the way in which what we understand as the traditional bureaucratic state um ru- run by rules and laws and democratic processes and checks and balances is sort of crumbling before our eyes around the world i mean there are- elon musk has many fans in the west but i'm not sure they fully realize how much power he's aggregating
0: the most extraordinary thing i thought in that article was when in the middle of the negotiations over, you know, we've got we, they didn't even have a contract with him about the provision of Wi-Fi, so it wasn't as though they could even just cut him in or out. You know, they were in the White House clearly; it had all been not thought through at all. And in the middle of these negotiations over, are we going to pay him some money or not? Musk drops the bombshell. Well, I spoke to Putin last week. And and he, he told me that he thinks I'm interfering, you know, so it's very, it's costing my business, you know. And they said, wait, what? You you spoke to Vladimir Putin, You're one-to-one? Yeah, sure, you know. And so <laughs> you've got the richest man in the world, potentially the most powerful individual, non-governmental, maybe including governmental in the world, having a fireside chat with the most dangerous man in the world, and the White House didn't even know about it. It's utterly extraordinary.
2: The access and the ambition of the new cast of tech, you know, tycoons doesn't cover it, you know, they're giants. It never ceases to amaze me. I remember a few years ago, uh, I, I met someone extremely senior at Microsoft, which is one of the least sort of zany and, um, you know, off the wall and bond villainish of the companies. Um, and kind of prides itself on its sort of sensible philanthropy. And I was talking to him and, and said, you know, well, what? where do you see all this leading? And without missing a beat, he said, oh, Microsoft and Google and Amazon, we will all have seats on the UN Security Council by 2035. And I, I, I wow. you know, needless to say, uh, <laughs> spluttered somewhat. And I said, oh, on what basis? Yeah. You know, because, and he said, on the basis of power, he said. Now I, I I think he's wrong. I don't think the UN as currently constituted will, you know, you're not going to have bloody Mark Zuckerberg sitting alongside the representative of uh, of China on the UN uh, Security Council. That mm. is not going to happen. But the that the the spirit of his ambition was extremely powerful, and and I and I think it, something like that is is a genuine risk because and we saw it in the pandemic you know you can't you can't fight a pandemic without the assistance of all these companies you can't do anything and you have in america people now talking about should we break up meta is it too powerful similarly people saying has elon musk simply become too powerful but there are very because most legislation was passed long before this technology gathered the power it has and this technology we have in 2023 will look like nothing in five years. It's very difficult to keep pace. Um, yeah. You know, we're all clearly on the cusp of an AI revolution, and then quantum computing will come in, and these guys control yeah. all of it.
0: Yeah, it's chilling. I remember about ten years ago, showing my bosses at the paper I was working at at the time a video someone had made. It's, it, it'll almost certainly still be on YouTube, and it was, it was if if people Google Google Zon, it was it was around the notional merger of Amazon and Google and the consequences <laughs> of it. And much of it has played out, you know, extraordinary yeah. overreach of power that goes way beyond commercial interest. The way that, for instance, Google uh, through uh, Google News seeks to exert influence over editorial publishing without them being a publisher themselves, the way that they seek to make friends with big media by effectively giving them huge, huge grants so that people become dependent on Google uh, as part of their business model. It's very frightening. And I I can remember um, going to several editorial conferences where people from Google lectured journalists about how they should do journalism. And I -hmm. found it appalling to look around the room as these lectures... One of them, I remember, particularly by a commercial guy, an, ad, an advertising sales guy who ran Google Ads. Uh, and he was telling them ha- what kind of news people wanted and what kind of news people should be given. And I, the most appalling thing about it was that nobody in the room stood up and told him to fuck off. You know, everyone was sitting yeah. there with their notebooks. These were like some of the most influential journalists, editors, chief executives in the world in a conference room, being lectured to by an ad sales guy about what editorial should be like and taking notes. It was pathetic. (laughs) And, you know, you can see the consequence of that. That was about 10 years ago in Hyderabad in India. And you can see the consequence of it now where people are fearful and dependent on Google. And, you know, I've got no time at all for the Daily Mail, as you know. But one of the things that, I would credit them with is they've got a, a deep-rooted cynicism and and a very hostile view of Google um, because they recognize that Google has ambitions where it shouldn't um, now Google do a lot of good in the world of course the world's probably a much better place than it was pre-Google but these big massive corporations and that's what they are they're not they're they're out altru- they don't have any real altruism their only sense of purpose is profit these corporations need to be held in check by governments and by media. And it's not happening. And, you know, it's not happening because people are scared.
2: And also because we, people enjoy convenience. So Amazon is, for me, the, the model of this, which is that as far as most people are concerned, Amazon is two things. First of all, it's the, the, the online shop where you can buy anything. And secondly, it's uh, Prime. You know, it, it's a streaming service that you, if you buy enough on Amazon, you get for free. But actually, probably the biggest component of Amazon that has power is AWS, which gives it control over almost all of the Internet. If AWS goes down or is withheld, we can't do anything. So with a cheery face and, you know, often with a rocket at his side, Jeff Bezos is holding a gun to the head of most societies which is you know okay if you don't like this fine but then you're not going to have aws so as with google it looks like a search engine but we all know it's uh, it's something completely different it's an algorithmic data collection force that that uses data as people used to use gold you know it's the most valuable commodity in the world and i think that you're right matt the 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 governments of the world are 20 years behind the curve and yeah, I, I hope that some of the new governments coming in you know, appreciate that.
0: Last quick anecdote before we go for a break is I was the first journalist in Europe to interview Jeff Bezos when when Amazon was just a bookseller, right? And that's that's all they <laughs> sold. And I and I asked him, I said, you know, so okay, so you've you've got this new book platform. What's next? And he's and he looked at and he has this mad glint in his eye and this even madder <laughs> laugh. And he put his head back and laughed and he said well, then it's going to be gardening and garden furniture and music and CDs and he went on oh, and then wedding dresses and, and and I said where does this stop Jeff and he said it's called Amazon it never stops it's the biggest thing in the world and he was and the insanity but also the the crazy brilliance the, of the man the was, reality was absolutely it was breathtaking to behold. Anyway, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about. Something that is absolutely fascinating in possibly the most horrific way you can conceive. So, see you after the break. So, thanks for listening, folks. Um, As ever, I'm going to try to encourage you to subscribe to The New European, where you will get on a weekly basis, uh, or a daily basis, in fact, online, This kind of conversation from luminaries, including the wonderful Matt Dancona, but also Alastair Campbell and Will Self, Patience Wheatcroft, Bonnie Greer, a host of fabulous writers with very interesting things to say each week, and also a plethora of great cultural and artistic features from across Europe. And it's a type of journalism you won't find anywhere else. And I'd like to say it's the antidote to the corrosive nationalism of much of the UK's right wing media. So, this week, I have a very special offer for you. And it is from our fellow podcaster, Mr. Rory Stewart from The Rest Is Politics. And he's got a book out called Politics On The Edge. It's a fascinating look at the last nine years of his involvement in politics. And I think I've seen the the proof uh, from the publishers. It really is, uh, you'll love it, Matt Dancona. It's an intriguing look into the ins and outs of, of politics and, and what may be going wrong and what could be done to improve it. And new subscribers can get a free signed copy, signed by him, not me, you'll be glad to hear, signed copy of Politics on the Edge when you join the New European from as little as £1 a week. So just go to theneweuropeancouk forward slash 2mats, that's the number 2, then M-A-T-T-S. What are you waiting for? Do something positive about UK media and get a free copy of Rory Stewart's new book by subscribing to The New European today.
1: Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim?
0: Welcome back to all of our listeners. Hope you're enjoying the show, Welcome and back. thank you, by the way, for um, for for listening. Because we're climbing those charts, and we please tell your friends all about really about the Two Mats thank podcast. Um, l- this week has been one of the most extraordinary uh, stories of of my journalistic career, and it's been it's been you know wall to wall coverage. So th- th- there are few angles left to explore about. Nurse Lucy Letby, uh, the killer yeah. of of seven babies and an attempted murder of of several more eight more, who was sentenced to spend the rest of her life in prison on Monday, and I I can't remember a a trial that has suddenly captured people's um, well to say it's captured their imagination. Well, maybe maybe Jamie Nation. Jamie, Jamie Bulger. Yeah, That's probably the. Is probably the, right.
2: o- the only comparator uh, in my lifetime anyway, yeah. I can think of.
0: Yeah. Obviously, it's been wall-to-wall coverage. Um, and again, God almighty, mustn't make a habit of this, but another shout out to the bloody Daily Mail, who did a, a fantastic podcast, um, which has been the number one podcast in the charts, following the trial of Lucy Letby. But one of the things that I can't get out of my head, and I, I'd love to explore it with you, a bit because you're more intelligent than me and you'll be able to explain it. Is what's the difference between evil and insanity? And when does somebody who is so blatantly evil as as this woman is, in her own words on that post it note, I am evil, when when is somebody so evil and abnormal that you've got to treat them as being insane? You know, and if they're insane do you have to treat them in a in a way other than just locking them up for life? Do you, is, is does a compassionate society and I know people will be throwing the radios or the laptops out of the window at this point with me suggesting this about somebody who is so beyond the pale. But do is is there some, is is there some other response to that level of evil?
2: Um it's very hard isn't it because and needless to say <clears throat> there's been a lot of thought over the decades to this you know is there such a thing as evil and philosophers call it the problem of evil because one of the difficulties of evil is as, a, as an idea is that because it's we hope un- you, a word used not too often it's 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 reserved for extreme cases like this does it then zone those cases off as somehow different and and keep us out as analysts and explainers and you know the attempt to dis, to de, to determine what what allowed this to happen whether it could be being prevented and so on I think evil is worth keeping as an idea and I think part of that is because of the history of the 20th century um, the thing I've read about evil that had the most effect on me was Primo Levi's book If This Is A Man which is his account of as the first book he wrote about being in auschwitz and when he arrives primo Levi he asks one of the guards why looking around and the guard says here ist kein warum here there is no why and i think that's a really you know primo Levi in all his writings resisted over analysis of what the nazis had done on the basis that there were certain acts that were evil and they shouldn't be um kind of dismantled into sociological factors psychological i mean he was perfectly aware about the circumstances that had brought the nazis to power but what he didn't want was for those factors to be sort of put in a in a package and say that's why the holocaust happened levy's point was that's not enough now obviously that's a hugely different and unique historical event and uh, it, you know it would be quite wrong to to say it's the same as what happened in the hospital where Lucy Letby worked. But the case of Lucy Letby is very, very instructive because she does seem to have been a totally unique individual. There's this thing, Munchausen's by proxy, which a lot of speculation has gone into she's got it, which is just to, if listeners don't know, it's a condition where typically caretakers are so uh, damaged themselves by certain elements of their upbringing or their genetic profile that they harm the people in their care as a means of gaining attention and it may be although no one it's really important to underline no one has diagnosed her as having that uh in fact what's interesting about the investigating officer and in officers and indeed the judge was that none of them ha- i think very sensibly have attempted to to offer a pat explanation for why she did what she did and so when we're looking at it, there doesn't appear to be any great trauma in the background. Maybe we'll learn more. You know, parents were very supportive, although one could say they were perhaps over supportive. I mean, supportive to the point where, you know, they were turning up in, in court and, you know, they had earlier threatened to take the doctors who sounded the alarm to the General Medical Council. Now, at what point does the protective instinct of a parent become almost a form of... Um, quasi complicity i don't know but what i do know yeah. is that if if we if we go too far down the line of saying well it was all the management's fault and it certainly was and she shouldn't have been allowed to uh, enter a grievance against those who were making allegations against her and she shouldn't, certainly shouldn't we, we and even the uh, the notion that she was able to uh, get away with it for as long as she did because she was um you know a cheery looking white girl that it was white privilege at work maybe so but that's clearly not the main reason you are confronted as 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 one is i think quite rarely with with a person who is who deserves to be called evil it's not just that the Mm -hmm. acts they commit are evil that the the scale intensity and moral extremity of what they do deserves that word and we should reserve that word for not you know not we shouldn't use it very often, but I think this is an occasion where it it deserves to be yeah. brought out.
0: I completely agree with that, and I, I in trying to identify exactly what what to call Lucy Letby, I obviously I was searching around and, and, and reread that great uh, Hannah Arendt treatise on yeah. Adolf Eichmann, uh, where she identified what she called the banality of evil, and it struck me that. Although, of course, again, just as in the Primo levy uh, example, the cases are wildly different. But it did strike me that there was a, a, a slight connection in that what is so shocking about this is how banal she is as an individual, you know, how yeah. totally vanilla. In fact, I think that's one of the titles on the Daily Mail podcast episodes, The Vanilla Killer, and what Hannah Rent called Eichmann, terrifyingly normal. And, and that mm. I think is the most chilling. You know, when you when you think about Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, you know, mad, mad, schizophrenic, insa- insane, Jeffrey person, Dahmer, you know, obviously Dahmer, crazy. You know, you know, there was something a bit mad about Fred and Rose West as well. You know, there was something, oh, yeah, a- yeah, identifiably absolutely. evil. You know, but Lucy leppe, plain, you know, boring middle of the road, mediocre, a kind of nobody, but this extraordinary inner life, you know.
2: I'm so fascinated that you, uh, you mentioned Arendt, because that phrase, the banality of evil, has caused so much trouble over the years, because yes. I think people misunderstand what she was trying to say. I don't think she was trying to say banal and therefore okay. On the contrary, what she was trying to say is what you just said, is that this could lurk anywhere, don't kid yourself it couldn't be next door. And don't kid yourself either, and this is where we really get to the bone, that it could be within you. Now, you know, we, we hope that's not true. But I think that's the, the key, is that you notice whenever there's a terrorist incident and someone is held who's been suicide bar or whatever, there's then a startled profile. It's, you can set your watch by it the morning after saying, but he was such a normal guy. You know, he played cricket. He enjoyed school. He had mates. As if the capacity to do something like that is, by definition, inconsistent with leading a normal everyday life. Now, terrorism, we can sort of park over here. as a separate issue. But, but what it does have in common is we're so uh, trained by myths and stories and fiction and movies to think that the the evil person is... Thoroughly evil, you know, Doctor Evil, Darth Vader, you know, they are they are grotesquely evil and there's nothing about them that isn't evil. The, the chilling thing about this case is that it reminds us that someone who, in every other aspect of their lives, in their social media life, in their friends, in their family life, might be completely and utterly unremarkable, nonetheless commits a crime of, I mean, almost... Un- un- unendurable horror it's it's very i think mm. people have struggled this week just talking to me mm. to, to get their heads around this because it involves yeah. systematic devious prolonged harming and mm. killing of the most vulnerable beings there are yeah. ch- you know yeah. often premature children and yeah. doing it over a period of time this was what she did you know this was what she yeah. she clearly existed to do this and she was incredibly cunning you know and and knew exactly how to prolong her her time doing it Uh, it, i mean remarkable horrific and the
0: the enormous consequences that this will lead to i don't think are close to being played out i mean there was the in the in the in the uh backwash of the harold shipman case uh there's now something called the shipman effect which is where um doctors end of life care doctors are very nervous about over prescribing morphine to relieve pain yeah. for terminally ill people because they're scared witless that somebody will say oh, you will you're you're hastening their death and this is a direct consequence of shipment and so there are there are people every day who are in greater pain towards the end of their lives uh, than they need to be because of that bastard now this uh bastard lucy letby's uh consequence will be I'm sure a, a decrease in trust and a nervousness and increase in anxiety in neonatal wards everywhere and Absolutely. a sense of a sense of depression uh, amongst those amazing uh, nurses who are at the sharp end of looking after those precious uh, babies. My, my firstborn was in a terrible state when he was born and we spent two weeks in intensive care uh uclh in in uh, london uh as and, and and as he made a full recovery but i can remember feeling utterly lost and uh just sure. amazed at the dedication uh, of those nursing uh, staff in that hospital who nursed him back to to full health and f- feel gratitude to this day 18 years later and the thought that those people who are massively un- under the cosh. Uh, you know I read today 43,000 nurses in England vacancies. We're short of 43,000 nurses yeah. in England alone.
2: They're overstretched.
0: Mate, 366 nurses in 2022 tried to kill themselves according to the Laura, Hy- Laura Hyde Foundation who deals with that. Now, so you're dealing with a population of very caring people who are already under intolerable pressure through all sorts of governmental cuts and you know shortages and all sorts of stupid decisions made about the NHS and then they have this and they must feel and I would just encourage anybody who knows a nurse or encounters a nurse to just bear that in mind and and be yeah. as grateful and as positive with them as you possibly can be because they they are angels.
2: I couldn't agree more and um, I, I think that uh, it's really important that whatever follows it's it's clear that steve Barclay, uh, the health secretary um in, in, as he does got it wrong by limiting the the inquiry that must follow to a just an independent qu- inquiry and uh, you could see Gillian keegan this week the education secretary saying that a full public inquiry is on very much on the table and i am as sure as i can be it will be a full public inquiry because that has the the powers to get people to testify and produce you know, evidence, as, as there must be in this case. And I hope that what comes out of it, to your point, Matt, is not some sort of greater suspicion of nurses, but a greater suspicion of um, what's happened to the NHS in, in the way that it's been taken over in the last 40 years by management. And that management is not subject to the same sort of professional regulation as the as nurses and doctors and so on are. It really isn't. And some of the things that have emerged in this case about the, the ability of uh, NHS managers to shut down really legitimate inquiries and to talk horrifically about the potential for reputational damage to the trust. I mean, that seems to me a kind of a rudimentary, you know, key first principle issue about how the NHS is structured the, the the extent to which hospitals act like businesses now, you know? Yes
0: What didn't we talk about?
2: Well uh, in other respects, India made history by landing uh, on mm. the moon and becoming the first um, uh, the first nation to land probe um, uh, on the south, in the South Pole region and it, it, it's incredible um, here we are, the, India joins that elite club of nations that have achieved a soft landing on the moon. There's only a few of them. There's the States, the former Soviet Union. Modern Russia hasn't done anything in that regard. And China. I am a space junkie. I find all this sort of stuff incredibly exciting. And I'm thrilled that, that um, you know, India has joined in. I know it can be misused yeah. in, in nationalist propaganda, but it's fantastic.
0: I, I Listen, I've, I've turned 180 degrees on this in the last 24 hours because I, I've railed against the Indian space programme, on the basis that, you know, as I'm sure many of our listeners who've been to India, you see such abject poverty in India that people just are generation after generation are consumed by and, and condemned by. And I thought, what the bloody hell are they doing sending missions to the moon? You know, if they're going to spend money, then fix the sewers in Calcutta, you know, that kind of reaction. But I have to say, when I saw two things, one that it was a lot cheaper than i'd thought it was it was done on a shoestring uh this mission, mm-hmm. I think it cost sixty million or something like this in terms of like very light payload, very low development costs uh so it was it, it was a lot cheaper than I'd suspected, but also I did think you know one of the key constituents and you can apply this more broadly to other nations and not look too far from home. One of the key constituents to a healthy society is a nation that's proud of itself. And I did think exactly. that maybe those maybe those people in Calcutta and, and in Mumbai and Chennai and, and all the people who live in horrible conditions, as Oscar Wilde said, you know they might be living in the gutter, but now they are literally looking up to the stars. And maybe that's a, a national positive.
2: And talking of looking up to the stars, we talked last week about the lionesses. And... Commiserate with them, but are proud of them for how they perform. But one thing that happened yeah. as a consequence of the of the of of the the match and the tournament was that no one at all is taking any notice of the World Athletics Championship, really. And Josh Kerr just won a gold in the fifteen hundred, amazing performance, yeah. you know, stunning. And I think on the same night as as the lioness' uh, performance in the in the final, Catherine Johnson Thompson another on, underdog, won the heptathlon, you know, n- which normally yeah. in, you know, if it hadn't been for that, the World Cup had been on, we'd be, you know, we'd be on the front cover of the, the of, on the front page of newspapers. So it's looking good for um, the Olympics in Paris next year. It's very exciting. Good stuff.
0: for good. And and last lastly for me, just while I was waiting to come onto this, uh, to record the podcast, I got an email from Roger Waters as, organization saying that uh, his ver- his new version of the song time from dark side of the moon has been released so i, oh. I listened to that do you want to, the verdict
2: i do what's it like
0: bloody awful it's it's so it's 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 so it's so bad it's worth listening to it's really? like he's lost the plot completely i will check it Poor out old rog anyway you can let me know what you think next week i will i certainly will Well, thank you very much for listening. And folks, remember our special deal uh, with uh, signing up to The New European and get a free signed hardback copy of the brilliant Rory Stewart's new brilliant book, Politics on the Edge. That's at the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two M-A-T-T-S. And there's a link in the show notes. Thanks as ever to the third mat producer, Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And until next week, It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made ByHeart a better formula for formula. Learn more at ByHeart.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com
2: So, Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History?
1: Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar.
2: On Tuesday, how Roquefort became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we
1: meet the Jobs and Wozniak... Of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the City of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.